last week, we were blessed to be able to celebrate the birth of Christ. Amen. Uh, many of you got up on Tuesday morning and celebrated with family, uh, and you had a chance to maybe exchange gifts. Um, and as I said last Sunday, I pray that you had an opportunity to take a moment before one gift was open and just bow in prayer as a family and say, Lord, we are so thankful, yes, for these material gifts, but let's give praise to him for the eternal gift that was given, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that is the gift that is the greatest thing that we could ever have into our lives. And let me just tell you this as well. It's great to give gifts. And many of you uh, spent a couple of months maybe, or maybe some of you were like a couple hours before trying to find that perfect gift. Okay, I'm not going to point fingers. I'm not going to have you raise your hands. Um, But maybe some of you really put a lot of effort and thought and time into this gift for this person. And you were like, oh, I know they're going to love it. I know they're going to love it. And you got to watch them open that gift up. And you saw that joy come across their face, and you got to enjoy that moment with them. Um, Some of us maybe got gifts we weren't really expecting, okay? Some of you got gifts, and you said, oh, you shouldn't have, and you really meant it, right? (laughs) Oh, how lovely. How did you know? I make a joke about this every year, but it's true. As a parent, I have a responsibility to provide certain things for my children. I believe that includes food, okay? Not always the best food, right? You guys with me on this one? Sometimes it's not Rice Krispies, it's Krispies Rice. You know what I'm saying? It's that off-brand, you know? Sometimes it's the bag cereal versus the the box cereal. I'm required to and have responsibility to provide shelter and housing for my family and my children. And I'm responsible to provide basic clothing for my children. But parents over the years have gotten slick with this you've gotten out of having to buy as many gifts because you wrap up socks and underwear and you put it under the tree and you call that a gift. I've always said, what's next? Like wrapping up like dinner, like putting that, here's the gift, it's dinner. You get to eat dinner tonight, congratulations, here's the gift for you. But maybe some of you actually went out and really invested in a gift and you thought through a gift and maybe it wasn't even the most expensive gift. Maybe it was something simple, but you got to watch the joy come across their face. Can I tell you that we can never understand the joy that comes to the Father's heart when another individual, his creation, receives Christ and becomes part of his family. We think we know joy. We think we know celebration when we give and exchange gifts. When God, the Father in heaven, sees a lost soul come to redemption and is now forever and eternally a part of his family, I mean, that's joy. We were able to come together Christmas Eve, and we just praise God for, um, as as long as I've been the pastor since 2012, it is the the largest Christmas Eve service we've had. Um, I was talking to somebody who's been on staff and with me since I've been here since 05, and uh, him and I were talking, and he said, man, he said, I don't know for sure. He's like, but I think this is one of the biggest Christmas Eve services we've ever had, and I don't know if that's true. I don't have the numbers going back that far, but I can tell you that when we left Christmas Eve, Sandra and I were in the car and we were just blown away by the amount of people that came out and the love and the joy and the celebration of Christ's birth. And so we're so excited to continue to celebrate Christ's birth today and into the coming year. Nothing in all of human history has caused more of an impact on humanity than the birth and death of Christ. Nothing in all of human history, has caused more of an impact on humanity than the birth and the death of Christ. 
It is something the most skeptical scholars cannot, cannot deny happening and cannot explain away. For over 2,000 years, many, many scholars and, 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 and atheists have tried to combat and tried to denounce the birth of Christ, tried to denounce and, and deny that Christ really died on the cross. They've obviously tried to deny the resurrection. But when Jesus was born, we said at Christmas Eve, everything was different. When Jesus died, everything was different. And then when Jesus rose again, everything is different. And scholars and, and those that try to stand against the word of God have tried and tried and tried. And if you only watch the History Channel or you only listen to YouTube or you only listen to secular media, you might believe the lie that they've proven that Jesus never really died on the cross, that he never really rose again. It's all a farce put together by the early church for control and authority and all these things. If you believe that lie, let me tell you something. The story is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. It is not a farce. It is not a fairy tale. It's not a hope. You know, one of the number one reasons why scholars, skeptical scholars say, we just can't get over this one thing. If Jesus did not really rise from the dead, if the disciples really snuck in, knocked out two trained army Roman guards, some fishermen jumped some commandos and overtook them, rolled the stone away, snuck the body of Jesus out of that tomb in just a matter of a couple hours, and then, you know, kind of went on this, this idea, that propaganda of, oh, look, he rose again, he rose again. If that's what happened, then why is it that church history tells us that every one of those disciples died a martyr's death? refusing to denounce Christ. If it was a lie, let me just be honest with you. You can be sold out to a lie for a long time. You can really buy into a lie for a long time. But there's going to come a point where you go, okay, look, this is costing me way more than I thought it would. I got to come clean. It's one thing to die for a lie that you don't know is a lie. I believe there are people in religions all over our world that are believing with all sincerity that their way is the true way. And I, I hate to say it, but Jesus said that there is only one way to the Father, and it's through Christ. And so there are people that are martyring themselves and being suicide bombers and all these things because they believe it's going to get them into heaven. They believe it's going to guarantee security. I believe they're dying for a lie. They don't believe it's a lie. That's one thing. But to die for a lie that you know is a lie to give your life for something you know is not true. Every skeptical scholar has stood back and said, we can't figure out that one. We can't figure out why they would do that. And you know why they did that? Because it's true. Because the greatest impact on humanity was the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have heard it said one author said it this way. I don't remember who said it, but I heard it said, you can tell the size of a ship by the wake it leaves behind. You can tell the size of a ship by the wake it leaves behind. And the wake of Christ has been rippled down throughout centuries and will continue beyond you and I. I love what Warren Worsby says about that night over 2,000 years ago. He says this, as weak as a baby is a common expression that could not be applied to the baby Jesus in the manger. While he was as weak as any other baby, humanly speaking, he was also the center of power as far as heaven was 
concerned. He was just as weak as any other baby, humanly speaking, but he was also equally in that very moment, laying in that manger, the center of all power as far as heaven was concerned. What did Jesus say? It's been given unto me all authority. And he was powerful. We have talked about hearing the true story of Christmas through the noise of the season. We've talked about the first Christmas song, as well as the wonder of the story. This morning, we are going to be talking about how to live out our response to the true story of Christmas, not just on Christmas and not just in December, but throughout the whole year as it ripples through our lives. What Dave said is so true. I thought the same thing. I've talked to missionaries. I've, I've seen things like what he's saying of, of other nations and other church services. I've, I've heard and seen things like that in our own nation. You know, it's so funny, just the other day, and it's amazing how God works this way. Just the other day, a buddy of mine who's in ministry called me up. Actually, he texted me, and he said, just a simple question. He said, why doesn't God send revival? Why do you think God doesn't send revival? And so I called him up, and I said, that is a great question. And I'm so thankful you're asking it, because it shows he's truly desiring to grow. A young pastor just planted a church literally like a couple of months ago. Then they had over 100 people at their Christmas Eve service, brand new church plant. That's cr- that is crazy, by the way. That doesn't happen. But he was asking. He was studying personally on worship and these things, and we got talking, and something kind of clicked in our conversation. I said, you know, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe the question isn't, why doesn't God send revival? Because I truly believe God sends revival all the time. I believe individually people are being revived. People are coming to a newness in faith. I believe individually people are awakening to new things, not new in the sense of not revealed in Scripture, but new to them. They're becoming more committed, more passionate about the things of Christ. I believe all over our world, in America and all over the world, churches are experiencing forms of revival. But maybe when we ask the question, why doesn't God send revival? Maybe we're asking the wrong question because maybe our focus isn't or shouldn't be on revival, but on what we're called to do, which is be obedient. Maybe we're thinking, God, send the big revival, and God's saying, I just want you to go talk to your neighbor. Like, you want thousands to come to your church? You're not ready if I sent 20 to minister to them. You know, sometimes I wonder about this in churches. Churches gather together for prayer meetings and they pray, Lord, send revival. Lord, send people to us that we would, could, could lead them to Christ. And I truly believe God is saying, I would love to do that, but you don't have enough Christians in your church that are serving and growing and committed to the ministry that if I sent you 10 families, you couldn't minister to them because you don't have enough teachers. You don't have enough people serving. So I would love to do that, I mean, that's God's desire. I truly believe until the end of time, hear me now, until God says we're done now, he always gives time and chances for revival and for repentance. Nowhere in scripture does it say, hey, it's going to get really dark in the world, so at this point, quit. At this point, when it gets this dark and there's no Christian president or no Christian leader or it's illegal to be a Christian, then you have the right to quit. He never says that. He says, no, 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 no. The more you see the day approaching, the more you should encourage each other in love and provoke one another to good works. Isn't that amazing? The darker it gets in the world, the more committed we should be to going out into it. And I I hear these questions all the time, especially around the new year. 
man, I want our church to grow. I want our church to grow. I do too. But maybe the question shouldn't be, God, why aren't you growing our church? Maybe the question should be, God, why am I not allowing you to grow me? Why am I not committed to serving? Why am I not committed to disciple making? You see, God never says pray for revival in the New Testament. Not specifically. Now think about this. What, what's, what did I just say? A lot of churches pray for revival. God send revival. And that's all good. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for it. But do you know that's not a focal point of the New Testament? Do you know what God does say? You know what Paul says to, to the church at Ephesus or Peter says to his churches and his epistle? Do you know what all these authors of the New Testament are encouraging? Would you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Would you grow in love? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to indwell you and to control you? Would you learn what it is to share the gospel? Would you disciple people? Would you share Christ with other people? That's the crux. That's the, the focal point of the New Testament is individually, go make disciples. I talked about my friend who planted a church. Do you know nowhere in the New Testament does it say plant churches? That's not in the New Testament. Nowhere does Jesus say, now go plant a church. No, he says, go to all nations and preach the gospel. Go make disciples. Do you know what happens when you go to a, in a place and you start preaching the gospel? Guess what happens? People get saved. Guess what those people desire to do naturally of the Holy Spirit's moving? Gather together. And as they're gathering together, guess what you have? A church. We do it the opposite way. We go plan a church and then try to go get people to fill the church. Jesus never said, no, no, that doesn't work. What you do is you go reach the people, you lead them to Christ, God in his Holy Spirit will draw them together, and then now you have a church. Now you minister together and you minister out into the world. And so as we talk about Christmas, it's, it's amazing to celebrate this time of year, but I fear in my own life, as well as the lives of many individuals that you know, so many people around this time of year are so open to the gospel, so open to Jesus Christ, and then January starts and we make some resolutions, and then all of a sudden come February or March, everything just kind of mellows back out to normal. We kind of just slip back into our routines. And so I want to ask us this morning, how do we purposely, how do we purposely live out this story as Christ ripples through our life into the lives of others? Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. Let's just read a few familiar verses. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. We're going to read down through verse 11. We'll talk a little bit and then we'll kind of break the passage up. Luke 2 and verse 8 says this, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. I don't know how you would react but I think I would be a little more than sore afraid. Like terrified, right? I would be just blown away by this. Verse 10, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. We said this before. Who is Christ for? All people. So why are we so hesitant to take him to them, those people? Why are we so hesitant to think, well, they could never be saved? Well, you know how those people are. Them over there, that group. Man, I tell you what, prejudice has no business in the church. Pre any form of prejudice. I don't care if it's based on skin tone, financial status, social status. It has no place. Because as far as I can tell, Christ is for all people. So his church should be for all people. 
This doesn't mean that we condone all people's actions. We don't go out and say, it's cool that you're this way. We accept you as you are. No, no, we say, Jesus accepts you as his creation, but he's not okay with your sin. That's why you need grace. So we go to all people with the message of salvation. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. I absolutely love the aspect of the Christmas story from the eyes of the shepherds. It's truly one of my favorite parts of the Christmas story. They were the first witnesses to and sharers of the birth of Christ. I don't know if sharers is a word. I typed that and I thought, sharers. I don't know if that's a word. But I had this professor in college that would just make up words all the time. He would just put N-E-S-S on the end of every word. And he would just turn it into a word. Christ-likeness. Biblicalness. Like he'd just do this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't those words. So I thought I would just try that this morning and just see. So you can write it down. Sharers. Okay. Sharers. Okay. With an S. But what can we learn from these shepherds as we live out the true story of Christ? What can we take from this example of these shepherds who were the first witnesses of the birth of Christ? The first thing we have to notice is they were ordinary and normal. They were ordinary and normal. Verse 8. And they were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. This is a simple point, but vital for us today. The shepherds were just ordinary people doing an ordinary job when the angels arrived. I love the fact that they were just doing their job. Just as every other night or any other day, nothing was different. They were just in the routine, in the mundane, in the everyday, and that's when God spoke. And I want to encourage you with this. Sometimes I think we look for the mountaintop experiences and we think that's where God's going to speak. But sometimes I believe, although those happen, I think the normal way God speaks is in the everyday. It's just in the routine. It's just in the normal. I think it's when we're just in that, that, that routine of a work day. We just get up and we, we, we go to work and we, we do this and we do that. It's in those everyday moments that God speaks. And I think we miss it because we think he has to speak in the big moments. He does speak in the big moments. He does lead in those big moments. But I think it's one of the ways that God speaks to us most commonly is in the everyday. This is, if not one of, the greatest foretellings of Christ's earthly ministry. That these average Ordinary shepherds are the first witnesses and the first ones to testify of the birth of Christ. One author says it this way, To the shepherds, the first notice of Christ's birth was given. Listen now. Not to the princes and chief priests and learned men at Jerusalem, but to weak and illiterate men whom God is pleased to choose and call. Did you hear that? To weak and illiterate men whom God is pleased to choose and and call, and reveal his secrets to. When he hides them from the wise and prudent to their confusion and the glory of his grace. And this was a presage of what the kingdom of Christ would be and by and to whom the gospel would be preached. God chose these shepherds to foreshadow the ministry of Christ and said, just as these shepherds are looked down upon in your culture and nobody wants to give them a chance, I'm telling you, that's who Christ is going to minister to. That's who I'm going to reach out to. Now, he offered grace to everyone, but it was the ordinary men 
that were the first witnesses because I believe Jesus was trying to show us, God was trying to show us, don't think it's got to be the wise and the prudent and the religious and the wealthy. Although God can use those individuals, but so often read the New Testament, read the word of God. There are wealthy and wise men. Obviously, Solomon was very wealthy and very wise. David was very wealthy. Abraham, very wealthy. But there's also this woman named Rahab. There's also this guy named Paul, who was the greatest persecutor of the church. There was this guy, Peter, who denied Christ three times in one night and chopped off a guy's ear. You ever chop off a guy's ear? Anybody chop off a guy's ear? Okay, so nobody has that in common, so he's even worse than you in that way. If anybody would raise their hand, I'd have been a little concerned, okay? There would probably have been a great story behind that. It probably would have started with, so what happened was, I didn't realize, but those are the kind of ways those stories usually start. They were ordinary men, but they were also men of faith. You see, they believed the words of the angels by faith. Ordinary men, hear me now, who believed by faith. Ordinary men who believed by faith. Look at verses 9 through 15. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. Luke chapter 2, verse 9. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to, to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Verse 15. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. First, we have to acknowledge that in context, biblically speaking, these are obviously male angels. You might say, how do you know that? Well, it's obvious. There's no mention of weight or length about the birth of Christ. No details given. So they're men, angels. <laughs> All the angel says is, come and see. And if that's not how a guy answers a question when somebody says that so-and-so was born, I don't know what is. Oh, so so-and-so had a baby. Yeah, well, what would they have? Well, a baby. Well, yeah, but what's the length and the weight? Well, come and see. I don't know. Just go look. It's not hard. Women always give the details. It's not true. Women always give details on the length, on the width, on, on everything. Hours of, of labor, when the water broke, which nobody needs to know about. All these details. And I kind of, I used to tease Sandra because I know Sandra, she would wear those numbers like a badge of honor. Like, let me tell you a story. You know, it's like, it's just amazing how women are. And I know why women do this. Let's be honest, ladies. I know why women hold those numbers in their head for so long. Because when that child becomes a teenager and they're mouthing off, you can say something like this, 12 hours of labor and this is the thanks I get. That's why women hold on to those things. Men just don't care. Men don't give the details. But I love this part of the story. I really, really do. And I love that they announced to the shepherds that Jesus was born. And I love that the shepherds followed through and went and saw. Man, do you ever just read that and just keep reading? Like it's just common sense. But it's not really common to us, is it? It's, it's common in the story. We know they went and saw. We know that. But the angels give this proclamation. They go away. They go into heaven. 
And the shepherds, what do they do? They look at one another and say what? Let's go. Let's go see this thing which was shown to us. They, by faith, trusted and went. This seems, again, like common sense to us because we know they find Jesus. But when they were traveling, they had no idea what they were going to find. They merely trusted the words of God and stepped out by faith. I love that God's Spirit guided them to the babe Christ. Through the dark of night. What did the angel say as far as where Jesus was? What's the description they have? Give me some of what he says. In a manger, right? Wrapped in swaddling clothes. Okay, do you think there was only one manger in all of Bethlehem? By the way, what's the manger? The manger is what? That trough, right? The kind of the, the thing that they would lay the baby in. In this case, they laid a baby in it. Think about that. There's probably not just one manger in all of Bethlehem. And yet these shepherds were led by God's spirit. We don't know that the star was there yet because the wise men come later, right? But we know they were led and there's no mention they saw a star. Maybe it was the star, the same the shepherds or the wise men saw. We don't know that. The text doesn't say that. But they were led by God's spirit because they trusted in faith. And they just walked out. They just went. And I love the simplicity of that faith. The original text, when it says, uh, when you look here in verse 16, it says, and they came with haste. Do you know what that means? They ran. They ran to find the baby Jesus. So let's pause for just a moment and evaluate how we would respond to such a display. Would we go? You might say, if a choir of angels appeared, I would go for sure. If a multitude of angels showed up and said this, I'd be like, I'm going. That's what I, that would be what I need. But I don't know if that's really true, to be quite honest. I'm just speaking for me, and I'm speaking for what I've seen in, in the church, in our country. I don't know if the average church-going Christian, maybe not even really a Christian, just more of a churchgoer than they are a Christian, I don't know that they would go. I don't know that they would run to find them. The truth is, we have that account given to us in Scripture. We have that account and also so much more to trust. So our willingness to go should be greater because we know Christ not only came, but died and rose again. Let's pause for a second. Acts tells us that when Jesus ascended into heaven, before he ascended, he gave his disciples a command, not a suggestion. We treat this as a suggestion, or we say it's only for missionaries or pastors or junior church teachers or deacons. He says, go and be my witness. Go. Then he ascends into heaven, and he disappears into heaven, and then the disciples are doing what? Just standing there. And an angel appears, and what does the angel say? Why are you staring into heaven? He that ascended will come again. Basically, go do what he said. Do you see the similarities here? The angels appear. Give this proclamation, this great thing of God's glory. They disappear. The shepherds go, we should go check this out. And they go. Jesus gives this proclamation, ascends into heaven, and the disciples stare up in confusion. Hmm, what do we do now? I don't know what to do. Do you know what to do? I don't know what we should do. Maybe we should just wait till he comes back. I know, we'll get a bunch of us together. We'll build a building and we'll just sit here and wait for them because it's safe here. We'll just wait for them to come back. 
And we'll tell each other about how excited we are that he's going to come back soon. We won't go tell anybody else that he's coming again, but we'll, we'll have a great time celebrating that he's coming again. And then we'll call it a church. Man, no, 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 no. The disciples were encouraged to go do what Jesus actually said by faith. And so my encouragement to us today is we have this proclamation before us and so much more. Would we respond the same way? So what did they do after they found Christ? We know that they go and they, they worship Jesus. Look at verse 16. We're going to read it through verse 20. Verse 16 says, And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That word to ponder means to gather together in your mind all the things concerning what you're thinking about. To bring all those things together and to kind of, if you want to use the word meditate on those things, to dwell on those things. To kind of put it all together in your mind. To have an understanding of what God was doing. But look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. The first thing we have to note here is after the shepherds come and see Christ, they shared what they found. They couldn't keep them to themselves. We mentioned two weeks ago that Mary, or I'm sorry, that Luke contains five Christmas songs. We talked about Mary's Christmas song early on. But Luke actually contains five Christmas songs. The song of Elizabeth, the song of Mary, the song of Zacharias, the song of Simeon, and the song of Anna. And as we read those songs in those times of praise, we realize God was using those different voices to glorify and to prophesy the things of Christ. However, some would suggest that when the shepherds were praising God, it was in song as they went. So imagine this for a moment. I know it's hard for us to do sometimes, but I want you to think about this for a moment. It goes on to say in verse 17, And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. Many people think these shepherds left that manger and through the streets of Bethlehem went out and began to just praise God through song and sing out the glory of God that Christ was come, that Messiah was come. Could you imagine if you lived in Bethlehem and you're woken to this? These shepherds go into the street just singing praises. That's why I believe it says in the next verse that, that many wondered at those things. They were just kind of wondering, is this really true? God used these simple men to declare the arrival of Christ. Regardless of what culture of the day said about them, they testified anyway. Did you notice that? They didn't care what people thought because they realized the message was too important to keep to themselves. One author said it this way, for some reason... Shepherds were not allowed or permitted to testify in court. But God used some humble shepherds to be the first human witnesses that prophecy had been fulfilled and that Messiah had been born. The angels have never experienced the grace of God, so they can't bear witness as we can. Telling others about the Savior is a solemn obligation as well as a great privilege, and we who are believers must be faithful. You see, the angels can say Jesus has been born, but the angels can never experience grace the way we can. And so when we go and we testify, it's our own privilege. It's our own right given to us and a gracious one that we'd be allowed 
to go and, and pro- proclaim and to testify and to announce not only that Jesus come, but that he died and he rose again and that you can be saved by grace. That all your sin can be forgiven. That you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear what's coming after this. You can have a guarantee that Christ is Savior. And when you leave this world, you will step onto the streets of heaven and be one with God. That an abundant life is possible. You see, the shepherds couldn't keep it to themselves. And so what do they do after they hear this message? They go through the streets singing. They're praising God. What does the Bible say they did next? They returned. What does that mean? Well, if they left the fields to go find Jesus, guess what it means? They returned to what? The fields. They returned to their flocks. You know how we would say this in our day and age? They went back to work. They had a great time of celebration and met with Christ and all these things, and God spoke to them. But again, it's so simple but so vital. The shepherds didn't stay at the manger. I don't know about you, but I'd be tempted to not leave. Anybody else tempted to not leave the manger side of Jesus Christ as a baby? You'd want to stay? Raise your hand if you'd want to stay. Okay, most of us would be like, man, what what did every person who had a positive encounter with Jesus Christ not want to do? Leave. How about Legion, when he was set free from those demons? He said, please, can I go with you? Please, I don't want to go anywhere else. I just want to be with you. I want to be near you. I want to be, I want to be able to talk to you and interact with you. I just want to be in your presence. But these shepherds realized that wasn't their calling. They weren't called to stay at the manger. They were called to go back to their area of influence, back to their field, back to their work. They went back to the routine, but they went back different. They testified all the way back to the fields, glorifying God. Notice this. They didn't glorify Mary. They didn't glorify Joseph. They didn't glorify the angels, right? doesn't say they went back praising the angels, went back praising Mary, went back praising Joseph. No, they went back glorifying God. And I truly believe that when we have an encounter with Jesus Christ and we have a a moment where we allow him into our lives and we receive him as our savior and now we're one with him, the result is we will glorify God. We won't glorify self. Dave's song hit it right on the head that if any time you receive praise, you need to stop and say, yes, you can say thank you and you can say I appreciate that. Listen, everyone loves an appreciation. Everyone loves an attaboy and girl, right? Everybody loves a good pat on the back. Good job. There's nothing wrong with that. But man, if you live for the attaboys, you'll die when you don't get them. If you live for the praise of other people, you'll die under their criticism. We don't live for other people to go, hey, good job. We don't live for the number of likes we get on Facebook for a post or Instagram or whatever other social media platform. Well, nobody liked my post today. And we can we laugh at that. Like, come on, who does that? I'm not kidding you. Your self-worth does not come from what you do. It doesn't come from your position. It doesn't come from your checkbook. It doesn't come from what you see in the mirror. It doesn't come from your image, what your clothes labels say. Your self-worth doesn't come from how many friends you have or think you have, what you drive, the house you live in. Listen, some of you have worked so hard to build your kingdom, you forgot it's not really your life to build the kingdom with. You think, oh, I'm somebody because look at what I have. No, you are all that you are because of Jesus Christ. And that is enough, by the way. 
Praise God, that's enough. You are a created being of God with intrinsic value and intrinsic worth. That's why human life is sacred. Human life is not sacred because what we contribute to society or what we take away from it, that does not make life sacred. Do you know what's funny is atheists will consider and tell you that human life is sacred, that human life should be valued. They'll preach and talk about morals, that you can be moral and have moral living and all these things. But the truth is, if you remove God from the equation, what makes all life sacred and valuable? There's no common denominator among humanity unless Christ, or unless God rather, is the creator. You take him out of the picture, there's too many variables to determine what really makes all life valuable. Because you can easily say, well, this person's more valuable than that person because they have more money. Or this person's better than that person because they look better. Or this person's smarter, so therefore they're better than that person. It starts kind of going down this trail. But when God is creator and all life is sacred, now we realize I don't have to fight and scrape and, and crawl through all the muck and mire of the world's way of staying to live. I can stand free and secure in the grace of God and say, I am his and he is mine in Christ. I am one with him. And if God blesses me financially, praise the Lord. And if he takes it all from me, praise the Lord. You have to understand that your life is valuable not because of what you give to it or what you have in it. Your life is valuable because you are God's. And when you find Christ, now you begin to live that abundant life. And you begin to enjoy the blessings of God. But also, here's the cool thing. When struggles come, you enjoy the blessing of God. You enjoy his peace and his comfort. You see, these shepherds were, were nobody special. Just ordinary men. They had this experience with Christ and they began to glorify God and then they just went back to work. And you know what? The next day or the day after that or the day after that, people would look at them and just say, they're just shepherds. They're just shepherds. They're nobody special. But they knew they were different and they lived different lives. It seems that their lives were different. They didn't shepherd the same or think the same. They had an encounter with Christ and all was new. So this week, let's bring it to our own lives. This week, kids go back to school. Praise God. We go back to work. Some of you are already back to work. Some of you have jobs where you weren't even going to get even Christmas off. I don't know. But for most of us that had time off, now we go back to work. We go back to normal. But I pray that we're different. I pray that when you walk into the office on Wednesday or you go back to school or you find yourself wherever you are, back to normal, whatever normal looks for you, I pray that you're different. And I pray that your difference isn't surface. I pray that it's deeper than that. I pray you would start the new year realizing 2019 isn't really about you. Because here's the truth of it. You're not strong enough in and of yourself to battle what's coming against you in 2019. See, this is where most pastors talk about all the good stuff coming in 2019. Oh, it's going to be great. There's going to be great blessings in the new year. I, I, I believe that. But there's going to be some things you didn't see happen. There's going to be some trials. There's going to be some struggles. You know how I know that? Because, I don't know, for the last few thousand years, it's been that way. Struggles don't magically go away because, oh, no, it's a new year now. So nothing bad can happen. And I get so tired of people fabricating these things and saying, oh, no, no, it's great. But the beauty is that in 2019, when things are going great or things are going poorly, circumstances change for good or bad. It's not, oh, okay, I'm strong enough. I can do this. 
Man, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I am nothing, but he is everything in me. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Man, we have a mindset in America today that we just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That is a lie. You can think that and you can be prideful and you can be arrogant and think, oh, it's all about me. And you can put on a smile and say, oh, no, no, but you can, if in your heart you really believe it's all about you, then guess what? God will let you live that life. But I warn you from the pages of Scripture, the pride will come to a fall. And then when I fall, I want to fall on Christ. I don't want to fall on my own works and my own kingdom and my own efforts because I'm going to be left wanting. These shepherds went back different. Yeah, they went back to work. Here's the thing. Some of you think, if I could just change my profession, if I could just change my position, if I could change my salary, if I could change my spouse, if I could change my kids, if I could change my home, then God could use me. Then I would be able to, then I would, no. Right now, as you are, as everything is, right now, surrender to Christ and let him make you different and use you right where you are. It may be a different job, but it may not be. So many husbands and wives are like, well, if I could just change my spouse, everything would be better. You want to make them like you, that would be great. Two of you in the same house, you'd kill each other in five minutes, okay? I don't know why we, we get this mindset, oh, if I could just make them, if I could just change my coworkers, everything would be better at my work. No, you be the change. Stop trying to think everyone else has got to change. You be the change. And if they change, great. If they don't, great. Whatever, it doesn't matter. You say, this is who God's called me to be. Because I'm the one that's in Christ, and I need to live that way. To be honest, that's why I'm so excited about a new series we're starting next week. And I want to encourage you, don't miss next week. Small things, big difference. Brand new series starting next week, kicking off the new year. Small things, big difference. And I believe it's in the small things. When we surrender to Christ, we'll see the biggest difference in our lives. But maybe you're here today and and you know you're ordinary. You believe you're ordinary. You think you're ordinary. But to the point of you feel like you're not good enough. Who am I? I'm insignificant. No one pays me any attention. No one cares. No one listens to me. I want you to know you are, if you are in Christ, and if you've surrendered your life to him, he sees you for all the worth and all the value. And if nobody else gets it, I know it hurts. Seriously, I know it's a stress and a struggle and a trial when you feel like you're working so hard and no one's paying attention and you feel like no one cares. Let me tell you something. God sees it. He knows. Some of you have been fighting for acceptance from your loved ones, from your family members, For years, you want to earn their approval. Listen, if they haven't given it to you, maybe it's time to move on and say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be striving for their approval. Maybe I should live for God's approval. Strive to please him. Love my family. Love others in my life. Yes, and serve them. But not so they'll go, okay, now we appreciate you. Just know that you're appreciated in Christ. And I know in this moment, they may not seem like enough, but I promise you it is. Because I'm telling you, if you live for the approval and acceptance of others, when they don't give it to you, or when you fail them, or when they criticize you, it's going to crush you. But that's the beauty of grace. We are set free from all that in Christ. And we can know that we are one with him, and he is with us, and we have all that we need in Christ. The key is, are we willing to step out by faith, to believe the word, and then to go where he leads? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are.
as you bow right there where you are, we're going to have a time of invitation. And I thank you so much for being here today. And would you just bow your heads right there where you are and just, I'm going to ask that you would just begin to ask God, God, what are you calling me to? I know I'm ordinary. I know I'm, I know I have weaknesses in my life. We all do. Maybe you're in this room right now and you don't really consider yourself ordinary. You think, well, you don't know my position. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I do. You don't know how important I am where I work. You don't know how, how valuable I am. And, and that's all good. That's all great. But compared to perfection, compared to Christ and his standard, we are all falling short. And so what do we do? We just surrender and we say, I need you. For the one in the room that has the job that nobody wants, to the one in the room that has the job that everybody aspires to, to the mom in the room that is the envy of all other moms, the one that other moms just like, I wish I could be like you, to the mom in the room that feels like she's failing every single day, to the dad in the room that, that is the dad that, that on the surface everybody thinks has it all together, but when they go home at night and they lay their head on the pillow, they know that they're failing. They know that they're not doing everything they could do. Other men look to them and, and envy to be them. They've got the career, they've got the money, they've got the success. And other guys are just like, man, I can never be like them. There are men in this room right now that, that have beat themselves up for failures. There are women in this room right now that are beating themselves up for past failures. And we feel like we can't be used. I pray that we would know that his love is so great, his grace is so strong, that it can forgive any sin in our lives. We don't have to try to aspire to be this or that so that God will use us. We need to aspire to allow Christ to have ruling and reigning in our lives. That we would be like these simple and ordinary shepherds that just believe the word of God that went, that saw, experienced the presence of Christ and returned differently. Anyone in this room right now that has received Christ as their Savior, they have experienced Christ and are different. But as we walk in this world, sometimes we get confused, we get off track, we think we got to be this, we got to be that. I pray, Lord, that we would just go. Just go and just share the glorious gospel. We don't have to have all the answers, but we can learn. We can, we can talk with other people and find out how we can come to a solution. We can study your word. We can study other things to find answers. But, Lord, we don't have to start there. We start with just sharing the gospel. And so thank you for calling us. Thank you for using the wise and the wealthy. Thank you for using the simple. Because, Lord, ultimately, if we are in Christ... The world says we are foolish. But Lord, I, I will joyfully be the fool for you. I will joyfully walk through anything for you because you are worth it all and so much more than I could ever give. And so Lord, we pray that if there's anyone in this room right now that does not know you as their Savior, Lord, that you would impart to them just the knowledge of your grace, the knowledge of your love, that they would come to know Christ, that they would repent of their sin, trust in you, surrender to you, and live their life for you, that you would lead them in that decision.
whether they're feeling like the worst parent, the worst person, they've done this, they've done that, whatever, Lord. Your love is greater and your grace can heal. For the Christian here today, Lord, that has grown cold, or maybe, Lord, in this last month have gotten on fire for the Lord, and they're fearful. They know that the new year, they have these desires, but they know themselves and they know they might slip. I pray you would renew a boldness and a courage in them. Help them to reach out for help and accountability and support that the church can encourage them. Lord, in all these things, we want you to be glorified. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? If you'd like to come and pray, maybe there's a husband and wife, a mom and dad, an individual that wants to come and pray and say, 2019, I'm committing it to you, Lord. This is, this is your year. This is yours. Whatever I need to do, I'm giving it to you. Maybe you want to come as a family and say, we're going to commit to step out by faith and trust. We're not going to let it end with Christmas. This isn't the end of what God is doing. We're going to live this story out by faith and continually trust in you. Maybe you'd come. Don't worry about anyone else. It's not about them. It's about you and the Lord right now. Maybe you'd come. I'll be down front here with Sandra. And if you want to come and pray, We'd love to pray with you. Whatever God is doing, as we sing this song, would you respond to him there in your seats or maybe you want to come pray at the altar. Again, mom and dad, it starts with us. Grandma, grandpa, let's be the change. You pray and ask God to use you this year.